Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus. Hmm? You're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime. And tonight, a huge true crime update and our review of the podcast Stranglers. Should you listen to this epic tale of a true crime that terrified a city and gripped the nation? We'll let you know. So joining me right now to get that done is the host of These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, my true crime co-author, real-life husband, and favorite measuring man, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. That is so creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but hold on. Hold on. Let me just see here. Yeah, I'm just stretching my hands apart. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool. I definitely can see you in one of those frocks. All right. Also joining us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed PI, full Full-time cat lady and part-time pole dancer, Laura Bricker. <laughs> Hello, Laura. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. Just fine. And rounding out the panel this evening is noir novelist, resident doubting Thomas, and all-around jolly guy, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Nanu, nanu, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Was that Orkian that you just threw our way? It's Mork from Ork. I was calling Orson, yes. So, Toby, um, earlier today, I did my due diligence, and I pulled a list of some of the items that our listeners have been purchasing using the Amazon link on Crime Writers On. Did you receive that list, Toby? I did receive that list. Did you have time to take a look at it and, and choose some items, perhaps curate a few that you want to let us know that our listeners purchased? I did actually curate a few. All right. Let her rip, Toby. Okay. So we're going to start off thematically. This is for the ladies. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Should we change up the music? <laughs> Quick, Rebecca. Change up the music. But here we go. Uh, Tony Moly Delight Tony Tint. Nine milliliters, three set. No idea. What? What is it? Okay. No idea. All right. Here's another one. Betty Dane Fashionista Collection Mold Resistant Line Shower Cap Diva. A shower cap? But it's mold resistant. It's mold resistant. (laughs) How well could you possibly be wearing it that you'd have to worry about mold? (laughs) Well, you know, we're in New England. People are cheap here. They wear it forever. It's true. You should see our shower curtain liner right now. It looks like a science experiment. But if you're a fashionista. So to keep from having to wash your hair, you'd put on a moldy rubber hat. (laughs) It's mold resistant. (laughs) It doesn't sound like something a fashionista would wear either. No, it does not. ZLZ. 
or perhaps it's pronounced Zulz. <laughs> Women's junior comfy stretch butt lift. Skinny jeans <laughs> leggings. Eight black okay. blue. That was me, Toby. I confess. <laughs> you got the buff butt lift skinny jeans? I, well, now that I have my second career, I needed them. Exactly. There's a hell of a lot going on with those jeans. A lot of features. <laughs> yes. Is there All a right. backup camera? <laughs> All right, so that's the end of the women's portion. Yum Earth Organic Lollipops. Ugh. 1.3 ounce bag. If one is interested in having a lollipop, why is organic even something they're thinking about? Do you think that's just like a euphemism for like Colorado Hot? lollipops? <laughs> I don't know. It's organic. <laughs> wink, <laughs> wink. Funny mug. Yet despite the look on my face, you're still talking. 11 ounce coffee mugs. Inspirational gift and sarcasm by a mug to keep. Trademarked. You know what's the best kind of joke is when you have to say, this is funny, before you make the joke. Yeah. Okay, and the last one is definitely for the dudes. Eight-ton snatch block by vault. (laughs) Double the capacity of your winch and recover vehicles with ease. Rugged pulley system to pair with shackles and tree S. (laughs) Eight-ton snatch block. That could be for the ladies, too. It's for all the snow we're getting up here. So you Kevin, don't have to wait for the tow truck. Kevin, double the capacity of your winch. <laughs> you talking about my wife? You're, Andrew, you're for a you're fight. Double, no. my double the capacity of your winch. It's a wench. Yeah, you have like a really trouble with pronunciation sometimes. No, a wench. Come on, wench. Go you get me. The thing you can't pronounce is um, Atticus who? Fitch. <laughs> Finch. 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 Yes. Finch. Yes. Finch. Finchburg. Finch. Yes. Are you getting him confused with former Celtics coach Bill Fitch? No, he just can't say yeah. Atticus Finch. I just don't remember. Which All, right. All right. All right. Well, that was very good, Toby. Thank you very much for curating those items. You always make it special. Sure. Now it's time to move on to uh, our first discussion of the evening, and this is in the category of... True Crime Update! That was super masculine. There I just was... had a snatch block. <laughs> Uh, There was a big-ass development in a true crime case that we've talked about a lot on this show. This is the Michael Peterson murder case. It was featured in the documentary series The Staircase and the pilot episode of one of my favorite podcasts, Criminal. Kevin, now, before we get into the news, can you remind listeners who Michael Peterson is and what the story Mm -hmm. is around him? Yeah, Michael Peterson was a novelist, and uh, he lived in Durham, North Carolina, living there with his second wife, who was an executive, and on one evening in 2001, he says that he found her at the bottom of their staircase, and there was blood everywhere, and that she had fallen, she had been drinking earlier in the evening, and uh, investigators thought that perhaps that wasn't the case. They believed that she had been bludgeoned in the stairwell. He was charged with the crime. Meantime, uh, he was followed around by a French documentary crew who was looking at every aspect of this case and put together a miniseries called The Staircase. Which is amazing. Amazing. Amazing access. And uh, we are left to wonder whether or not he was getting a fair trial and whether or not he actually committed the crime. A big twist was we found out that when he was living in Germany that he had a close family friend, a neighbor, who also died falling down a staircase right. under suspicious circumstances. Which may or may not have been a giant red herring. Could have been. Who knows? In the end, uh, he was convicted in 2003, 2004. Then a couple of years later, there was an appeal, and they basically did another episode showing that 
the blood expert for the prosecution had lied about his credentials. And, and gave total bullshit testimony. Gave total bullshit testimony. <laughs> his conviction was overturned, and a new trial was set to happen this May. So, Laura, big news update. What happened to Michael Peterson this week? Well, this week there was a story out that Michael Peterson has reached a plea deal, and um, it hasn't been confirmed by anyone official as to the terms, but a source has revealed that it is an Alford plea deal, and he will plea in an Alford plea hearing to a charge of voluntary manslaughter. And so that charge carries a maximum of five years. He's already served eight. So basically, he's going to be able to walk out of prison, be done with the whole case, but he's still going to be considered a convicted felon. And I think it sounds like on both sides, you know, there's some questions as to whether or not they're actually going to be able to get a conviction again, if it's going to be the same type. It's going to be a lot harder. Uh, His attorney is going to be working to keep out some of the details, you know, had they gone to trial, some of the things that were in the first trial, like some of the gay porn emails and exchanges that Peterson had. Um, Also, like Kevin had mentioned, the death of the acquaintance who fell down the stairs. And there were some questions as to retesting DNA evidence from 15 years ago, and that that was really not going to be possible in a credible way, because some of the the DNA items had become intermingled with evidence from other cases while they were in storage. Now, Alford pleas are a really particular aspect of the criminal justice system. Just to get some background, because none of us are experts in this, but we happen to know somebody who is. We do. We do. I made a quick query and we got a little bit of tape from someone that we know, a friend of ours. He is a law professor at the South Carolina School of Law. His name is Colin Miller. He's obviously better known for being part of the undisclosed juggernaut podcasting empire. But around here, we call him Legal Legal Siri. Siri. (laughs) So let's hear what he had to say about this thing called the Alford Plea. The Alford Plea comes from the Supreme Court's 1970 opinion in North Carolina versus Alford. Now, in that case, Henry Alford had been charged with first-degree murder in connection with the 1963 shooting death of Nathaniel Young in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And if he had been convicted of first-degree murder, he could have and really probably would have been given the death penalty. So he decided, okay, I'm going to take a plea deal. I'm going to technically plead guilty to second-degree murder, but I'm going to maintain my innocence. And the problem with this is for a guilty plea to be valid, there has to be a proper factual predicate. So usually that would be a defendant like Alford saying during a plea hearing, Here's what I did in connection with the crime. And in fact, after Alfred is convicted, he appeals and says, there's no proper factual predicate because I maintain my innocence. But the Supreme Court disagreed, and in the process, they created what we now refer to as the Alfred plea. So this is a defendant who technically pleads guilty, maintains his innocence, but acknowledges the state had sufficient evidence to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and the Supreme Court has found that acknowledgement is what supplies the factual predicate for the guilty plea. In response to the question of why Alfred pleas are used on the prosecution side, it's usually a case where the prosecution recognizes they have a somewhat weak case, and rather than take their chances at trial, they accept the certainty of an Alfred plea. In terms of the defense side, usually the defendant is trying to save face. They don't want to admit guilt, especially to heinous crimes to their friends and family. It could also be a case where the defendant is in psychological denial, and so they enter this plea while maintaining innocence because they can't accept the fact that they committed this crime. Some cases you have a defendant who claims they were intoxicated and high and can't remember the facts and circumstances and can use the Alfred plea in those cases. 
you're looking at the typical cases where it's used, there was one study of 2,500 cases or so, and the most common cases, 27% of Alfred pleas in sex crimes, 27% violent crimes, and 12% white-collar offenses. In terms of why a defendant like Peterson would plead guilty after years of protesting his innocence, the answers are he's not really admitting his guilt, and he's probably conducted a cost-benefit analysis. So if Peterson took this case to trial, it would cost him money, it would cost him time, it would cost him stress. And there is enough evidence still in the case that there's a very real possibility he could be convicted again and spend the rest of his life behind bars. On the other hand, by taking this Alford plea, he guarantees he'll never spend another day behind bars. And no one really takes seriously the Alford plea as an admission of guilt, so he can certainly still say to friends, family, the public that he didn't commit this crime. A couple of things strike me as interesting about this. If you've seen The Staircase or even if you've just listened to that episode of Criminal, that first episode of Criminal, which, by the way, I highly recommend that that talks about this case. Michael Peterson has always adamantly professed his innocence, so much so that he allowed a film crew access to his entire defense process. He was certain, I think, that he would not be convicted of this crime because he was just really adamant that he didn't do it. And now you're faced with a situation where you've been in prison for a long time. You know what it's like. You have a chance to not go back, and so you get to make this deal. I don't think you need to have spent a lot of time in prison to know you don't want to go to prison. Right. But here's the thing. (laughs) For people who think he's guilty, this is going to affirm that feeling for them. Yes or no? It probably will, right? Yeah. So, uh, Toby, is this something that that you would do if you were in Michael Peterson's situation? Yeah. (laughs) You would? No, I, I, I seriously. I mean, I think if you have an opportunity to stay out of prison, you know, people already think you're guilty. I don't know what what's going to change their mind. So if they feel better about it, you know, fine. But it seems like that's not a huge price to pay to not have to go back to prison. It seems to me like a no-brainer. And Toby, I think you made this point when we were talking about this with Adnan Syed. I guess the point that you were trying to make, and I, I thought it was always a good point, it doesn't matter whether or not you want to cling to, no, I'm going to win in court and get my good name back. You can't do that. People have already made up their mind, regardless of what the outcome of a second trial would be. You just want to get your liberty. Laura, you, like me, are like a justice-minded person. I mean, does any Mm -hmm. part of you sort of think that, like, no, I want to win at trial? I mean, I know that it's practical, but does any part of you want to just be like, no, I want to be called not guilty. Yeah, but I mean, I've been involved in cases where, you know, there's somebody that you want to fight for and you're like, fight the man and fight this as this is not fair and this needs to be brought to light. And then there's cases where you sit down with a client because, you know, you have to kind of weigh the chance of them being convicted and the chance of taking a plea deal and getting out of jail either, you know, without serving time or getting out a lot sooner. And you kind of have to look at that. So it's hard to kind of put aside that fight the man just decide. But sometimes it really makes sense. And in this case, I mean, this has been dragging on so long. I can see why he would take this deal. Now, I want to talk about the elephant in the room, or I should call it the bird in the room, as I think we've had a lot of people over a couple of years of doing this podcast ask us to talk about the alternative theory of the Michael Peterson case. And this is Which the- neither side actually believes. I actually think that Michael Peterson's side does believe it. I think in, the, in that podcast they said that they 
well, they reject that. However, it is a very interesting theory. It's very interesting, and a lot of there are a lot of people out there who who hold a lot of stock in it, especially based on similar incidents with similar evidence out there, which you can easily look up on the internet. Tell but us what you're talking about. The timeline of the crime is that Michael Peterson and his wife Kathleen were sitting by the pool behind their gigantic house, and they were you know drinking wine and hanging out, and she basically went to bed before he did. So she walked to the house across the lawn in the dark went into the house and walked up the back stairway to where their bedroom was and somehow on that stairway fell or something or was hit and died. Now, the prosecution has always maintained that he murdered her. He always maintained that he did not. And I don't remember what his theory of the crime was, whether she slipped and fell, I believe, was his theory of the crime at the time. But there's an alternate theory of the crime, and this is what that episode of Criminal is centered around, which was that she was in the dark behind their house, attacked by a large owl who caused her head lacerations, perhaps gave her a concussion, caused head lacerations and injuries to her that appear consistent with the injuries on the head that they sort of show in the documentary as, you know, the the drawings of the injuries on her head and so forth, and that she either fell on the stairs because she was out of it after having been attacked by this owl and then bled out from her injuries on the stairs. Now, it sounds crazy if you don't know anything about owls, <laughs> um, but um, the thing that makes this theory hold water for a lot of people is that this is something that actually happens. There have been other people who have been swooped upon, attacked by owls who you know believe that they're picking up a, a piece of prey or whatever because of, you know the hair looks like an animal that they would pick up. And they've sustained serious injuries that look a whole lot like the injuries sustained by Kathleen. And, you know, the owls are on the prowl around that part of North Carolina. So, Laura. It's totally ridiculous. Why do you think it's. (laughs) I want to know why you think it's ridiculous, Toby. Because an owl attacked her and she just ended up being left in the exact same situation that a woman in Germany who they knew was when she was murdered. It's just. What do you mean the same situation? There's two people who fell out. Falling on the stairs is actually a fairly common way to die, Toby. It's not that unusual to, to have somebody die by falling down the stairs. It's unusual for one person to encounter two separate people who fall in basically the same way, one by accident and one through owl attack. That's, <laughs> that seems to me like that's some really crappy luck. So I, what I hear you saying is that you think Michael Peterson is guilty. It's, you know, it's a tough one. Like determining somebody's guilt or innocence by watching a documentary, I think, is, is, is a tough one. You know, again, it's like uh, what that producer said when she was talking about Adnan and why she thought he was guilty. It's just like you'd have to have such bad luck to be innocent. And it kind of feels the same way with Michael Peterson. That doesn't necessarily mean that I would say he was guilty in a verdict if I sat through the trial. But if somebody was like, do you think it's more likely that he killed her or she was attacked by an owl and just happened to end up at the bottom of the stairs exactly like this other woman they knew? I would probably think that it was more likely that he did it. I don't know if I agree with the owl theory, but I do think that it is scientifically possible Mm -hmm. because these owl attacks are not uncommon for that that area of the country. For a lot of areas of the country, yeah. They also found in her hand, Kathleen's hands, three small feathers Mm -hmm. that have been identified as being from a barred owl. And they examined, and by they I'm talking about some Ornithological, ornithological, ornithological experts, 
and that the lacerations on her head, which the prosecution said was put there by a, a, a blow poker. What a blow, blow poke. Blow, po- blow yes. poke. I never said that before. Which then, in a very dramatic moment in the documentary, we find it in the found garage, in the garage. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. A fireplace implement that it matches claw marks, talon marks from an owl. Right. And they show other people who've been attacked and the head injuries look the same. Yeah. So I'm not saying that I believe that's what happened. And I don't know if you guys have listened to that episode of Criminal. It's they episode make a strong one. Case it's easy to find. That, and if you look at uh, just one other thing, if you look at the Paradise Lost documentary about the West Memphis Three, one of the evidence that they used, a uh, piece of evidence that they tried to use was that the boys that were killed had been mutilated in a satanic ritual. Like, I think one of the details I remember was like a penis was sliced off. Right. But, you know, later analysis, the, the defense, you know, had experts come and say, the bodies were dumped at this place that was filled with turtles. Snapping turtles, yeah. Snapping turtles. Yeah. And would do and these other marks, including the things that look like dismemberment, you know, very closely match animal interference. Right. So I just want to read you this quick news item that I just found on the web as you were talking. This is like a good news story. Giant owl caught after attacking fifty people in Dutch town. <laughs> what? A rogue owl has terrorized a northern Dutch city for the past year, forcing locals to arm themselves with umbrellas at night. According to The Guardian, the aggressive owl has been dubbed the terror owl by residents of Pomeran, north of Amsterdam. The bird of prey is expected in more than 50 attacks on humans swooping silently from above and leaving many of its victims bloodied and bruised. The bird even hospitalized multiple people. Like, Who? This, this is a thing. Who? What? Who? <laughs> Who? I don't know. Who? I um, I like the owl theory. I'm not going to lie. Listen. I hear what Toby's saying, and I think that one of the reasons I love this staircase so much, and one of the reasons I will contend it is the Citizen Kane of true crime documentaries, is because it is the only true crime documentary I have ever seen that had me, after one episode going, oh, I think he did it, and after the next episode going, there's no way he did it, and after the next episode going, oh, he probably did it. It is so gripping, and they really do a good job of laying out the evidence pro and con Michael Peterson's guilt. Ultimately, I don't think Michael Peterson did it. Ultimately, I don't. I find him very believable. I find the access he gave this film crew like to be very compelling. And there's a lot, a lot about it that sort of lead me toward him being innocent. So maybe I'm looking for a, a thing to point to. And the owl thing just seems to fit really well for me. But I don't know. I kind of buy it. I'm not going to lie. I would like to believe it, too, just because it's just like you you can't believe when you hear it. You're like, this is just ridiculous. Like, seriously, I'm more afraid of bats and owls. I mean, I, I would say. If it, <laughs> well, bats give you like rabies. We, <laughs> and we had bats in our barn a few years ago and you walked in there and they would swoop you like I was like, oh. I'm always like covering my head, but I have, I, I confess, I have done some Google searching on this owl thing and these owl attacks. And, and like you said, they're, they're more common than you think they are. So, you know, I can't say either way. I, I think that at this point, hopefully this case is going to be resolved uh, as interesting as it has been. I think it's time to move on. I think the really great thing about the staircase was, as you said, Rebecca, the emotional ups and downs. Yeah. Because at the end, by the time it got to trial and then there was the verdict, I mean, I would say that, and we know that he, it's not a spoiler at this point that he was convicted. I was, as a viewer, emotionally devastated. Yeah. I was, I was, te- like the episodes leading up to that, and I knew, oh, we get to the end of episode, I don't know, seven or eight or whatever one it was, I was almost as tense as I was uh, for this past Super Bowl where the Patriots <laughs> came back and won in overtime. Go Patriots! 
Patriots. Okay, you just alienated 90% of our audience. Hey. America hates <laughs> the Patriots, Kevin. You, you hate us because you ain't us. Um, I got it. No, they hate us for other reasons, too. Well, hey, <laughs> Patriots aren't playing for you. They're playing for us in New England. But as long as you can go to hey, bed at night feeling that way. I'm just going to say... Patriots won. Michael, not guilty. There you go. All right. I'd like to see another episode of The Staircase to kind of get behind the scenes on this Alfred plea deal. I think that would be really cool. The other reason I recommend, really, if you haven't seen this documentary yet, folks, look it up because the access you see to a defense is unbelievable. And you really do, as we've pointed out on this podcast many times, and I believe Toby pointed out when we talked about The Staircase on this show, you see what money can buy you. When you have money, you can get really an incredible defense. You have to see that whole thing, and yet the guy gets convicted anyway. Kevin, what's in store next for Michael Peterson, you think? Well, I think he's probably uh, got a lot of legal bills to pay, so he probably should go back and write another book. Yeah. Kind of like A Divided Spy by best-selling <laughs> author Charles Cummings. A Is lethal threat, a book? an enemy within. Who can you trust? Uncover the truth in A Divided Spy. It's coming out on February 14th. Wow, we have an ad for a book on our podcast. That's so meta. Yeah, don't you remember they were on last week? Laura yeah. did such a great job reading them. They wanted it. They wanted <laughs> more publicity. And, uh, hey, they're coming out from St. Martin's Press. I have a book with St. Martin's yes, Press. Yes, you do. And they I've never bought it. You have two. Did they buy uh, podcast ads for you, Toby? Uh, no. No. Didn't buy them for me either. You're welcome, they don't have Charles. My, they Cummings. don't have my rights anymore, or else I'm sure they would. <laughs> <laughs> well, critics are calling a divided spy a convincing and gripping spy thriller with a clever, twisty plot, believable characters, and an abundance of of credible spy lore. Charles Cummings has been hailed as the heir to John Le Carre. Le Carre? Carre. Carre? I have no idea who oh, that is. I John said Le it wrong last week. Oh, God. You don't know who John Le Carre is? Like Tinker no. Tailor Soldier I've Spy? I've seen the oh, books. Oh, that dude. Okay. If I'd They're, they're like on my Audible, favorite books. Know. They're amazing. But, uh, yeah, Charles Cumming, he's, he's a good writer. All right, then. All right, hear it? That's a hearty endorsement The Daily Mail, Toby. NPR, all and right. Toby Ball all agree. I am going to say, and I'm not sure I would put the Daily Mail in my blurb if I was going to choose I love the God. Daily Mail. Did you see that Wikipedia just, like, uh, uh, excised the Daily Mail from its source list today? You're no oh, longer no. allowed to link to the Daily Mail from Wikipedia anymore. Wow, that's weird. So who are the other people that say this book is great? Well, uh, NPR says, NPR. calls the heir, the heir to John LeCare. Le Carre. Le Carre. Le Carre. Oh, God, I said it wrong last week. Yeah, that's all right. Read A Divided Spy by Charles Cumming, now available in hardcover and ebooks. No, not now. Actually, uh, February 14th. You could buy it now. You just won't get it till Valentine's Day. You can pre order it. Oh, yeah. More information, go to adividedspy.com. Anything else you want to talk about? I want to talk about that smell in the studio. What are you talking about? The the coconut smell. It yes. smells so wonderful. Is that because, Rebecca, you've been using Kapari beauty products? I am, not going to lie. I'm kind of freaking addicted to the Kapari beauty products. And, Laura, I'm going to use your least favorite word here, but the moisture that you get from these products is incredible. There's one of the Kapari beauty products that I'm completely fascinated by. Which uh, one? The coconut melt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's like a science experiment. It's like a solid, like, creamy stuff. You put it in your hand and it melts right in front of your eyes on your hand. Yeah, it has a very low... Low mel- melting mel- temperature, it, yes. It, it, I know, it's 78 degrees It's Fahrenheit. incredible. And it works really, really well. I love it. The way it smells. I put it all over myself. I love it. Now, why? Because Kapari products are made with 100% organic coconut oil. Oh, they don't organic. have sulfates, silicones, GMOs. This is really great stuff. And it also has sort of very, a very non-gritty texture. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, I use it too on my hands because, you know, it's winter, things get dry, elbows. You use the balm on your hands. 
Is that which one it was? Yeah, it was the bomb. It smelled great. It smells like summer. You know, here we are in the middle of winter in New England, and I try to remain positive, but smelling like coconut definitely helps me get through. Toby, do you have a Kopari story you wanted to share with us? It sounds like you keep wanting to, like, break in here. Well, I don't have personal experience with it, but my wife and daughter really like it. Oh, yeah? What products have they been using, Toby? The coconut ones? Yeah. <laughs> uh, are you, are I don't know. There's and- a whole bunch of different bottles and tubes. <laughs> my skin is naturally soft, Rebecca. Uh, I don't need these products. It but- is. I love the melts. The melt is my favorite. I love the facial oil. I love smelling like coconut. It's one of those things that, like, they're our sponsor. I'm going to keep buying it forever. I love it so much. I was actually pissed at you because you gave a bunch of it away. You mean Not, to our daughter? I want it back. It's <laughs> great. Yeah, yeah. Kopari is great for your skin, not so much for domestic tranquility. Say aloha to the best skin and hair of your life with Kopari. Go to Koparibeauty.com slash crime to get 20% off your order. That's Kopari, K-O-P-A-R-I, beauty.com slash crime, crime for 20% off. Koparibeauty.com slash crime. Slash crime. All right, let's move on. As part of our continuing mission of telling you, should you watch slash listen to slash read this? We're not going to tell you whether or not you should watch slash listen to (laughs) slash read this. We're going to give you our thoughts on the Earwolf podcast, Stranglers. This is a look back at the notorious Boston Strangler case of the early 1960s. But more than a retelling of the hunt for the killer, this podcast is part new investigation, part sort of historical look back as questions have lingered as to whether or not confessed killer Albert DeSalvo or a copycat killer or killers was responsible for all of the 13 murders that have been linked to the Boston Strangler. One note for the sake of transparency, Earwolf has advertised on this podcast through our agency back in November for Stranglers. We announced that podcast arrival. We did not offer an evaluation or endorsement of the program at that time, but we're going to do it now, right? Right. All right. So first of all, I want to talk about the style of the show. We very often start there. This podcast is very different. It has a very produced feel. It has a lot of sound design. It has a lot of old-timey radio tricks and effects, some fun sound effects, some reenactments, some actors are in this podcast. I just kind of want to get a sense from each of you how you feel about the style of the storytelling. What do you think, Laura? I actually liked it because I felt like it was, I want to say straightforward. We've listened to a lot of podcasts that, you know, we get a little bit more caught up in, you know, the storyteller who's telling the story. And this was more like a traditional documentary, but I really liked how there was a lot of old audio clips that they spliced in. I liked that we are really going through the case from the beginning. But we also know right in the first episode that, yes, very recently, DNA has confirmed that Albert DeSalvo was linked to at least one of these cases through DNA. So we know right up front that this guy is linked to the cases. But I like the access that we have to these old recordings and the people that were involved in the case and the people that are connected to the case. Toby, what do you think of the storytelling style in Stranglers? First of all, I think I think it's excellent. Basically, my only issues are with the storytelling style. I, I find it, the actor part of it, I find, I don't know if cheapens is the right word. I find it confusing sometimes to know if it's actors or if it's actual clips from back then. There are times when she doesn't do a very good job of signaling when we're hearing actors and when we're hearing actual recordings. I find that very distracting. And I think for a piece that I think is, you know, well-researched, well-reported, well-written, that 
detracts from the general seriousness of it. So that's really the only thing, but that did make it tough for me at times, and I, I wish they hadn't done that. I wasn't as troubled by the things that people often think that I am troubled by, like sound effects and... Well, let's make it clear. You're troubled by sound effects in reporting, not sound effects in sort of longer form stylized storytelling, right? No, and whether or not they're used well. I do think that, that she was transparent enough when we have interludes with actors. It isn't just to make a dramatic scene. She said often, you know, there's a transcript and so we've had these people read that. Or there is an audio tape, but it's not good, and so we've supplemented it with this. And I can't say if every single time they went back to it, she reminded us that that's what it was. After the first couple of times, you just, you just kind of roll with it. And I thought that it wasn't necessarily because they wanted to add suspense. You know, there's really no music in this, mm-hmm. which usually is sort of the thing that drives an emotional response in a listener. Instead, they just, you know, use sort of the facts. I think it's a pretty good investigation for something, a historical investigation. When you don't have a lot of those audio resources, I think it's acceptable to substitute this in a very straightforward way. And I will also give credit because I also very recently wrote a a book that took place in the early 1960s, so 50 years ago, and it was very hard to find anybody who was around who could meaningfully add to the story. And she found a bunch of people. She did find a bunch of people. She talked important to people, people yeah. important people and people we hadn't heard from before. I mean, is... granted, I wasn't writing about the Boston Strangler, which was a huge story. I was right. writing about a little known story that no one knew about. Right. So there were a ton of resources to begin with. But to dig them out, it sounds like she did, I mean, she had a, a whole production team, but it sounds like she did all the reporting and interviews herself. Well, here's what I hear. I, I don't think she did all the reporting and interviews herself. You here's... hear her interviewing everybody. I'll tell you what I hear. I hear a very beautifully produced podcast. I do have some issues with, it's more me, I think, than the podcast where a lot of the episodes to me sound alike or they sort of, I get confused as to sort of where we are, but we'll talk about some of that storytelling stuff in a minute. I hear a beautifully produced podcast that is produced almost like a TV show. It actually reminds me a little bit of the jinx in the production where they sort of blend real life stuff with actor reenactments. When they are transparent about the actor reenactments, like with the DeSalvo interview tapes, his confession tapes, I loved the way they used actors there because they did this really beautiful job of sound design where they start playing the actual tape and they do a beautiful crossfade with the actors and you hear how much the actor they cast sounds just like DeSalvo with that very high voice. Really, really effective, really, really good. But it sounds to me, it does sound very highly produced. Like, So, for example, when, when I say I don't think she's reporting the podcast, I think, and let's just talk about Portland Helmick for a second, the host of this podcast. I think she was hired to be a host, and there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. If you listen to um, Marketplace or All Things Considered or This American Life or a lot of shows that have sort of a, a personality, a central personality guiding you through it, or a lot of TV documentary shows like Investigation Discovery, the person who's talking, or even on HGTV, like, you know, on HGTV, like in House Hunters, or like there's like mm-hmm. that woman that you hear, those people are often disconnected from like the meat and the production and the work of the show. I know that she is actually interviewing those people, but I do believe that a lot of that is produced by reporters and producers, and I, that she is delivering mm-hmm. it. I, 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 I would point out you're making you're making an assumption. But that's you what it sounds like to, to me. To you, it sounds, but you don't know that. I also work you at a radio know, station, yes, and that's what it sounds like to me. I, I, yes. But you don't know that's the workflow there. Well. So I wouldn't say that Portland isn't doing. What I do hear is I do hear her 
her in every single interview. Yeah, and I think that's great. I think that's why it's well produced. But she's yeah. not a reporter either. No, I, well, I agree is. with Rebecca. She's not really. She's a voiceover person, Kevin, for the most. I think. Which I, is fine. Well, no, I, I looked at her. She, she is a reporter. She isn't a crime reporter. So she is yeah. a, an unusual selection for this project. She has a voiceover. But she's over, good. She's a great voice. Yeah. I think she's hosting. Is not, and I'm not, saying, I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying that it's different from other shows we've listened to because she's not saying, I did this investigation. She's using yeah. the we- and she's delivering material that's interesting, but it's not her doing all the footwork, and that is different than we've heard. But it's not bad. Well, I don't think she's doing the the. Okay, I, Rebecca's giving me the finger and saying the holding up ah. the finger and saying I want to go to Laura. But I, I, I just, uh, Kevin, do you think it's more likely that she's doing the actual reporting or that Michael Peterson's wife is attacked by an owl? Oh wow, those are both two <laughs> incredible things to decide. That's a toss up. Oh, that's that's really tough. I don't, I don't think see she, why I don't see why the fact that her background is in voice stuff would automatically disqualify her from being able to. I'm not saying it's disqualifying like her. All I said was that it sounds to me like this. You is sound produced, really jealous to me, Rebecca. I, well, you know why I'm jealous? Because oh I produce. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> you get the, the mansplaining going on right now. It's killing me. Um, you know, so basically, like um, we know that Sarah Koenig and Dana Chivas, like we hear the transparency. Like they went out, they yeah. did the shoot. Stop talking. They Whoa! Went out. <laughs> what the, what uh, the hell? I'm not including that, but seriously, yeah, stop right. talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, they went out, they do the shoe leather stuff. We know sort of their journalism creds. This is delivered by somebody who sounds really good delivering it. There is nothing wrong with that. It's just very different from other things we've heard. And I think that when you do look at Portland Helmick's website, you can sort of say she was hired because they knew she would sound good doing this podcast. Yeah, I agree. My sort of impression, and this is, you know, and I don't know how they did it, but my impression was that there's a whole team of people like would be working on a show like 2020 or Dateline and the people out in the field are getting all the people lined up and then she's the person that comes in and interviews them after they've got them lined up. And it's different to us because so many of the post-serial podcasts that we've listened to we are hearing how the sausage is made. Sometimes we're hearing too much of how the sausage is made because every person that's reporting a podcast is really giving us a blow by blow of, and then I went here and then I was thinking I was going to find this person, which sometimes is a little too much. And in this case, you know, it is produced in a different way so that we're just being told the story without any of that. Maybe there is more going on behind the scenes, but when you hear it, you're thinking, oh yeah, she's got a whole team of people who set it up for her. And then she comes in because she sounds good and she is doing the interviews and she is involved. But it's not the same type of like, this is our Nancy Drew who's out pounding the pavement, doing the shoe leather reporting that we've seen in some of the other podcasts. That's, that's just my impression. I want to talk a little bit about the setting, the Boston-ness of this. You know, I recently read a story about how Boston has become the go-to pop culture place for bad boys, <laughs> and how the Boston accent now has become linked in our culture with ne'er do wells and crime and shut your mouth, Rebecca. <laughs> I, I have That's to say, wrong. speaking of the Boston accent, I say knocky, and she's saying knocky or whatever she said it, and <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm so from Boston, knocky. I want some knocky. <laughs> you go to Market Basket and ask them for some knocky and see what happens. <laughs> they say, yeah, you go down aisle four, down aisle yeah. four. 
two <laughs> syllables, aisle four. It's past the tonic. <laughs> the one thing I've noticed is that I do hear one word pronounced that Toby has a particular pronunciation that jives with the word I've heard in this podcast. It, you know, I edit all your guys' tapes, so I know all of your vocal tics. I know all of your pronunciation stuff. And Toby, you have a way of pronouncing the word rather. You say rather. And that is coming up over and over and over again in Stranglers. And I'm, I know you're not from Boston, but I'm wondering, like, where you picked that up, Toby? Strangling um, people, obviously. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Central New York. <laughs> Rather. No, I get my wife gives me a hard time about it. There's nothing wrong with it. I think it's regional. I really do. Well, it's like, well, it's like I say aunt, too, instead of aunt. Right. So another thing that we should talk about, because we talked about him on our podcast before in relation to um, the O.J. Simpson case. Flea? By the way, that's trademark. Our friend Wyrick calls him Flea Bailey. (laughs) The craziness that is F. Lee Bailey, and we get a big old dose of him in this podcast because he is actually in this Mm -hmm. podcast, which is so great and interesting. For our listeners who haven't listened to Stranglers yet, Albert DeSalvo is... The central suspect, many people believe he is the Boston Strangler. He confessed. DNA has linked him ostensibly to at least one of the killings. And there's a lot of details that sort of point to DeSalvo. F. Lee Bailey was DeSalvo's lawyer. And that situation was insane. Who should I start with to talk about F. Lee Bailey? Toby, how about you? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing, I, there's, there's so many crazy aspects to the whole thing. My favorite crazy aspect was getting the hypnotist to come in from California <laughs> yeah. and like hypnotize him and then like basically start screaming at him Best while he's hypnotized <laughs> about like, how are you going to hurt her? How are you going to hurt her? Until DeSalvo or whatever his name is eventually just like attacks him. Yeah. The, the whole thing was, it was just so bizarre. <laughs> I love how when she said on the transcript that it says, DeSalvo lets out a whist. <laughs> what kind of a scream or a sob? It was a whale. A whale. Oh! Well, the thing about F. Lee Bailey getting his own client to confess to the crime in order to fulfill a weird-ass money deal he was making with right. the prosecution. Oh, my uh, God. Laura, I'm just going to say, Laura, go. Laura Bricker, just go. <laughs> what? The hell, I, I just, I was listening to that and I'm like, wait, did I just hear that right? And I'm like, no, no, I couldn't have heard that right. So he went and met with him and then he set up an arrangement for this guy to confess. Like, that's not even right. How can he do that? That's so unethical. And then the way that he was taking money from the book guy, I, I, it's just amazing to me. I mean, I know this guy's a little outside the box, a lot outside the box, and, and he has since been disbarred several times, I think, in several different states. But what the hell was that about? So this is basically the situation is that F. Lee Bailey made a deal with the prosecution in order to secure money for DeSalvo. DeSalvo wanted to make money from his crimes to support his family, who apparently he loved, even though he was ostensibly raping and murdering other people the whole time. He wants to write a book and profit from the crimes or participate in a a media project to profit from his crimes. Ask F. Lee Bailey if that's possible. F. Lee Bailey says, oh, it might be. There's more than one way more to skin, way to skin cat. a cat. And basically goes to the prosecution and says, I think I know who the Boston Strangler is. If I can get a confession, will you not use it? And the prosecutors say, yes. What do you think about well, that, Well, I, th- I think the thing they point out is that the guy heading the case from the, the task force, the AG's task force, was not a criminal prosecutor. No shit. And really stumbled over a lot of different things and and made a lot of mistakes. And I think a lot of it, too, seems like from the reporting that Portland did herself (laughs) uh, and from talking with F. Lee Bailey 
herself and the son of the lead detective herself that there was you know such a desire to bring safety back to the city of Boston to so that people would feel safe again that they were willing to make any sort of deal with the devil in order to keep the strangler from striking again Now, one of the things that I've been confused about with the podcast and the storytelling of the podcast, I feel like the premise they set up at the beginning is the narrative is that Alberto Salvo is the Boston Strangler, Mm -hmm. but he might not be or he might not be the only one. Am I the only one kind of thinking the podcast is not necessarily delivering on that insofar as they have spent so much time really doing a bang-up job kind of linking Albert DeSalvo to all these many crimes. What do you think about that, Kevin? I mean, are we getting more than just the Albert DeSalvo story here? It took a while, but yes. And and they did tease it out that there was probably more. Did they deliver yet? No, because there, there was a lot to tell in the DeSalvo story. Episode 11, which came out this week, does look at a couple of the other people that investigators looked at, including one guy who left the area and went to the Midwest where another string of strangling murders happened. And there's a good case saying, look, the signature between these sets of Boston stranglings differs from this set of Boston stranglings would lead, I think, some profilers, if this were in modern time, you know, to look at that and say there seems to be a different M.O. here, a different signature. This really does look like there could be two other people involved. Lastly, the thing, what, why DeSalvo? Because DeSalvo was a narcissist. He was very good at lying. And our inexperienced non-criminal prosecutor interviewed him in a way that fed him a lot of information, you know, which is a kind of thing, which is the basis for like a lot of these false confessions. Yeah. You know, you start feeding, you don't realize you're feeding information and you're sure. I mean, he was showing them crime scene photos. But here's the thing about it that's so weird to me about the whole questioning of DeSalvo to vet him as the killer. And Laura, I don't know if this struck you. It just sort of strikes me over and over again. They're bending over backwards to prove that a guy who has confessed to the crime, did in fact commit the crimes. Like they are giving him all these tests and making all these checklists. Is that surprising to you just how much, like you have somebody in prison for other crimes who is saying, I did it, and offering them plenty of evidence to show that he likely did do it, and yet they're following up and following up and following up. Did that surprise you? Yeah, I mean, and it goes back to when F. Lee Bailey was getting him to confess. The part that really struck me was he's like, yeah, so can you give me some things that only the strangler would know? <laughs> and the police told him, I'm like, are you kidding me? They gave out information about the investigation that really shouldn't have been given out to a defense attorney who's representing this guy. I mean, that was crazy. I just feel like there was so many areas in this case where people were trying to prove themselves. People were just determined to solve this case to the point that it's hard to separate fact from fiction as this was going along. And yeah, I, I understand why they think, yeah, this guy's probably not the guy. And and I, I tend to think it's probably more than one person when you when you hear details of some of these cases or that people were talking about it in jail 
and that somebody was talking about details of it and DeSalvo, again, wanted to capitalize on it for the money, but just the levels they were going to, but it also is, you know, this is like the pre, you know, what was it one part where they said, and then we got this thing, this computer, and we entered all the information in. <laughs> I'm like, what kind of computer do you think they had? And like how the hell are they even going to get the information out of that after they put it in there? Like, it's great. We got the information in there, but we can't read it anymore. <laughs> it's a series of ones and zeros now. Oh, yeah. 42. One of, I think, the strongest episodes of the podcast was episode four, which, Toby, was the episode with the woman who lived in the apartment before a victim who lived in the apartment that they thought may not have been killed by the Boston Strangler. This was a young woman who also, there was a motive to kill her that may have been tied to her married boyfriend. But then on the podcast, Portland, all by herself, dug up this woman and interviewed her. And she gave the story about how she had lived in the apartment prior to the woman. And sounds like she had a lot of interactions with DeSalvo as one of his caricatures, which was the measuring man, the model right. scout who would come and measure you with his hands and then kill you. What did you think of that episode? What do you think of, of this idea that they keep introducing these alternate theories that seem to all kind of come back to DeSalvo at the end? I mean, it was a good piece in that, if I'm remembering correctly, she said that hadn't been told before. Right. So it did give you sort of a look at how he operated and, you know, what, what the thought process was for women who would let him in, even if they didn't necessarily trust him. So, I mean, that's clearly whoever did the research on that. That was a good find. And I think it was one of the pieces along with, I think, some of the stuff that went on in New York and some of the interviews they have with, what's his face, the the Boston police officer's son. The son, yeah. Those, I thought, were sort of the strongest parts of it. I liked it, too. I love hearing from the sons because I feel like they're telling family legend. And sometimes family legend, we all know that family legend over time can kind of become like a little bit bullshitty. But the stories were so vivid and so good when the one son talks about there's still a hole in the door where my dad (laughs) punched the door and then the cop the the son of the New York cop his dad was the cop that Kojak was based on (laughs) Uh, so interesting and you know that he his dad would tell the story of that interview so many times that the son was actually acting it out when she was interviewing him. I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. And that brings you back to what you were saying, Kevin, about how they found all of these real people to talk to in a historical story and how difficult that is. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of those sons and whatnot, they had um, like all the documents and, and investigative documents that their fathers had. And so uh, it ended up being a really great resource. But I thought, you know, in general, this was a really strong investigative series. To get back to an earlier point about the storytelling and, you know, that first person storytelling, this one was never designed to be, I'm the host and here's my journey. Right. And that's why it's not written like that. You do hear Portland get in and mix it up with the different people. But the story, the sausage that is made doesn't have... Her fingerprints on it. Boy, I'm mixing a couple of metaphors That's right. there. That's, That's a right. really disgusting metaphor. Your so- sausage I like fingerprints that- on my sausage. <laughs> I was gonna say, I was gonna- sausage that gets made should never have fingerprints on it. Or fingers in it, for that matter. <laughs> but it's a pretty good, you know, one of the partners is Investigation Discovery, which is the cable network that does all sorts of true crime it stuff. It sounds a little bit like that to me. Yeah, I don't know to what extent they have editorial influence. But if there were a TV version of this, it, it might have a lot of the same stylistic elements as an ID show. Right. But I think in a much better way. 
I think that kind of gets to what I was trying to say before in that I, I feel like this could have gone, you know, it could have been like frontline or it could have been like ID. And I think with these like recreations and stuff, it kind of moves towards the ID rather than sort of a straight kind of reporting, which was where I guess I, I was somewhat disappointed given the quality of the rest of it. So it's presenter, not reporter. I mean, that is definitely sort of my takeaway. It's just it's very different. And it's not what I think we're accustomed to talking about in the show. Um, but actually, that brings me to my final question. So, Laura, assuming there are listeners out there who have not listened to Stranglers, a podcast by Earwolf, do you think our listeners should give it a listen? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways. What do you think? I say thumbs up. I think out of all the things we've listened to recently, I've liked this the most. Um, it was very easy to follow. There was a lot of great audio clips. Um, there's a lot of great access like we've talked about. I and mean, we had a lady who was a possible victim that escaped. I love all the flashbacks to the old TV shows that uh, <laughs> took inspiration. And we'll hear like a little snippet from that. And it's a fascinating case because I think, you know, people still are always going to wonder, did we really have the right person? Um, so I would recommend it. What do you think, Toby? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways? What do you think? I think thumbs up. I realize I've been critical, but I think 90% of it is excellent. I will say thumbs up too. I will give one caveat to my thumbs up, which is that to me, a lot of the episodes sound alike. I'm enjoying it a lot, but I have sometimes been confused and think I'm listening to an episode that I already listened to. Because it's a repetition of, of a tape. A lot of repetition yeah. of tape and information. And I think that has to do with the presentation style. And maybe for me, reordering the episodes would have helped so that we learned facts in a different order. But overall, it's beautifully produced. It's fun to listen to, as much fun as listening to a story about a bunch of women getting strangled can possibly be. <laughs> and uh, it's it's very different than anything else we've talked about before. So I'd say it's worth a listen. If you don't love it, that's okay. But if you don't love episode one, skip to episode four, perhaps, because I think episode four is super duper strong. What do you think, Kevin? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways on Stranglers. I, I am a thumbs up on Stranglers. It has more in common with one of these uh, public radio crime podcasts than it does with Crime Town, even though it borrows production elements from both styles. And I think it's been good. It's got one more episode to go. We'll see if it sort of pays off on the head scratcher, which is what we want is, you know, it is called Stranglers with an S. So you're right. Give us a little more on why the S, why mm -hmm. it could be there. But I think it's been very good. And it, it, even if you know a lot about the case or you know nothing at all, I think it's still worth going back and, and looking at the myth and the truth about the Boston Strangler and Albert DeSalvo. Things like I never, like, I didn't even know. Like the jailbreak. DeSalvo, like, after all of this, like, broke out of jail. Hmm. And, of course, he got caught because he, he, like, didn't really disguise himself well. Like, he could have colored his hair. But they didn't have Madison Reed then, <laughs> which would have allowed him to get salon-quality hair color. Just like mine. Yeah. From the convenience of your own home. He could have colored that the pompadour. The basement you were hiding in. <laughs> the mental institution you were breaking oh, out of. Oh, God, Bridgewater. Jesus. Uh, just get it at a fraction of the price. Now, if you missed the boat on booking an appointment with your hairstylist before Valentine's Day, never fear, Madison Reed is here. That's right. With one of their professional colorists who are available by phone, text, or email. They'll help you pick out your most flattering shade. I'm Tuscany Brown, by the way. Really? Yeah, I looked it up. I'm Tuscany Brown. I don't know what the fuck to say so to that. Exotic. I mean, I feel like you should you should take a vacation. Or I don't something. know. What do you think? Why do you think Tuscany Brown is looking? What do you think? You're looking pretty hot there. I know. It's pretty great. I know. If I had like a couple of pairs of nylons, I might. Oh yuck! 
was it? What was it he said at the end? The little poem that he wrote on his Roses jewelry that he are made. red, violets are blue. How in the world did I miss oh, you? Oh, God. <laughs> God. So romantic. He made chokers. Madison-read.com. Yeah, find the perfect. <laughs> but in all seriousness, Rebecca, your hair looks great. You've I talked know. about this for weeks. I know. And it's great because it's also very. Natural, PBA-free, free of glutens, free of resource at all. Yeah, it's ingredients like keratin. Made in Milan. And argon oil. <laughs> it's wonderful. I love Madison Reed. And you also can do your hair color in your bathroom without it looking like a crime scene it afterwards. Not. It looks great. I don't know why. It just works really well. It's a great product. I really, really like it. Madison-Reed.com. I got to say, I love it. Find your perfect shade at Madison-Reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit with the code WRITERS. That's Madison-Reed.com. Promo code WRITERS. Madison-Reed.com. Yeah. Promo that's what code I said. Writers. That's what I said. Why do you always have to get the last word in? And now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the, the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. See, I got the last word in. You did. So now we know what the beyond in Bed Bath & Beyond means. Two men in New Jersey were spotted committing a sexual act on one of the store's display beds. <laughs> the customers were promptly arrested and charged with lewdness and other offenses. But here's the thing. While booking the Bed Bath & Beyond sex suspects, police discovered the two men weren't alone. They were also infected with scabies. <laughs> These are little parasitic mites that burrow under the skin. Apparently, the men had a lot of scabies. So the officers who came in contact with them had to be treated and then quarantined. The booking station had to be fumigated. <laughs> And back at the Bed Bath & Beyond, the mattress, the tasteful duvet cover, and the goose pillows all had to be <laughs> discarded. So the crime of the week is sex on a bed with scabies at a Bed Bath & Beyond. So um, here's my question, panel. Laura Bricker, what will you buy with your next 20% off Bed Bath & Beyond coupon? A trip to the psychiatrist. Um, I'm having like a flashback to my public defender days when and this was a real issue. Like the jail would get shut down because of scabies. One time I had somebody I was supposed to go interview and they, they were living in a hotel because they'd been kicked out of their house because they had scabies. Yeah, I think I'd get a rubber mattress pad and maybe some incense. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Toby? What are you going to buy the next time you get a 20% off Bed Bath & Beyond coupon in the mail? Not a mattress. <laughs> <laughs> Ultraviolet light. What gets rid of scabies? Uh, the cream, according to the guy that, um, that had it that I had <laughs> contact with. Oh, my God. Jeez. Between chlamydia and scabies, or Laura ought to be a nurse. Do, do they sell scabies cream at Bath and Beyond? Probably on Amazon. I'd love to. Somebody go buy that so Toby can read it. To be fair, uh, I get super excited when I get the 20% off coupon, even though they're available everywhere all the time. I just, I think next time I'm just going to go straight to the, maybe like the appliance section, just avoid anything that is soft and, and fabric filled. What about you, Kevin? What are you going to buy the next time you get a 20% off Bed Bath & Beyond coupon? Oh, I just used the coupon because I got a super great deal on this tasteful duvet and goose feather pillow. <laughs> Couldn't believe the price. <laughs> my God, it was a steal. 75% off, right? Oh my God, it was like, I got them for like a nickel. It was, it was they were like just throwing it at me <laughs> well we should probably but, wrap it up on that do note. you have a back scratcher by the way because after sleeping on that i'm starting to feel a little 
<laughs> maybe maybe I shouldn't have gotten that free mattress. <laughs> so they're You're probably gonna not going to be a sponsor. <laughs> You're going to be quarantined in the studio, Kevin, in the Square Egg studio. Oh, my God. Maybe those Square Eggs are scaby eggs. Oh, my God. Oh. We should probably wrap it up on that. But before we, we do, should. Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> We, we do, and you're going to like this one. It's from Hannah, and the cat is Egon, and he is an international <laughs> cat. He is part Norwegian forest cat, nice. and he lives in Sweden. Huh. So I had never heard of the Norwegian forest cat. It sounds like their version of the Maine coon cat. Mm-hmm. Olaf's During, yeah, so a it Norwegian is, forest cat. What? Toby's cat is a... Norwegian forest like the cat? the size of like... They're huge. Oh, so it's like it is like a Maine Coon cat. So is Olaf huge now? Because he was just a kitten last time we heard about Olaf. He's still just a kitten, but he's as big as Littlefoot. Littlefoot's the killing machine. But Littlefoot Littlefoot is is the killing machine. No one says anything is as big as Littlefoot. It's not big if it's as big as Littlefoot. (laughs) Well, but it but it's not for. I say, why am I calling it Olaf? It. (laughs) He is not very old, (laughs) so it's a little bit like having. You know, a 10-year-old who's suddenly your size and can beat you up. It's oh. not, not a good feeling. <laughs> All right. Well, Toby Ball, if people want to pester you for pictures of Olaf online, how can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Laura Bricker, if people would like to tweet to you perhaps some um, scabies remedies that they do in their house, holistic perhaps, or perhaps that other exotic dancers have used, how can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Kevin Flynn, if our listeners want to tweet with you, how can they do that? I'm at Albert DeSavo, B-O. <laughs> what? That's a real thing? No, it's not a real thing. Okay, what is but your actual... if I were actual... the Boston Strangler, that would be my Twitter handle. <laughs> what is your actual Twitter handle? It's Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet or follow me on Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. By the way, my Instagram, full of dogs, not cats. <laughs> this show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. All of our listeners tweet to us there. It's pretty damn wonderful, and we tweet back to all of them. You can also send us an email at crimewriterson at gmail.com. Don't forget to head to our website where you can sign up for our newsletter and buy stuff using our Amazon link. Before you close your podcast app, leave us an iTunes review. It makes a big difference. And check out These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. Our handsome line producer is Henry Lavoie. Our theme music was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in Square Egg Studio at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the closet in our basement formerly known as Studio C. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. So what do you want me to translate to cat language very quickly? Ooh, can you translate, stay out of the room, Toby's trying to record right now, cat. Stay out of the room, Toby's trying to record right now, cat. (laughs) There you go. How about this? I'm sorry, but I have chlamydia. You should be tested too. I'm sorry, but I have chlamydia. (laughs) You should be tested, too. (laughs) It sounds apologetic. It sounds just like it was actually saying that, maybe. Well, that's the beauty of this. You start to believe. in crime media. media.
Critics are calling Charles Cumming the heir to John Le Carre. Uncover the truth in a divided spy from New York Times bestselling author Charles Cumming. Booklist gives a divided spy a starred review calling it, quote, an airtight espionage plot full of unanticipated twists. Read A Divided Spy by Charles Cumming. For more information, visit adividedspy.com. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.